Well, good morning, everybody. As Charles said, I'm Tim. If we haven't met, it would be great to meet you after our gathering this morning. Um, I'm associate vicar here. Anne, our vicar, is away today. She needed um, a whole day to recover and grieve and lament the loss of the rugby yesterday. <laughs> I can say that when she's not here. <laughs> no, she's uh, actually on holiday, although she did go to watch the game with her sister, and her sister lives in Wales, so they are probably celebrating either way. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning, we have reached that halfway point in this great book of the Bible, uh, this book of Hebrews. And it feels weird, doesn't it? Halfway already. I could keep going for ages because I'm enjoying it so much. But we have reached the halfway point, and I want to very quickly, again, recap where we've been and where we are going. So firstly, we need to remember that the big theme of this book is to show us Jesus's superiority, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Remember, this is written to a Jewish audience, and the writer has shown us that Jesus fulfills everything that has gone before that Jesus is even better. And that's why we see so many references to the Old Testament throughout this book. And we're going to see one again in our passage today. Mark, could you turn me down a little bit? I'm very conscious I'm feeding back ever so slightly. That's great. Thank you. And we started, uh, didn't we, in chapters 1 and 2, where we talked about how Jesus was superior to the angels. Chapters 3 and 4, we thought about how Jesus is superior to Moses and the prophets. We're currently in the section chapters 5 to 7, where we're seeing that Jesus is greater than the priests, that he is our great high priest and king. We're then in a couple of weeks going to hit chapters 8 to 10 about Jesus being a once and for all sacrifice and his superior covenant that he has made with us. And then the chapter, just the end of chapter 10, our vision verses for the year is the turning point. In chapters 11 and 13, we're going to finish looking at the call to follow Christ, the call based on all that has gone before and what that means to follow Christ. And I hope you've been seeing more and more as we've been looking through this book about who Jesus is and that it's deepened your understanding about Christ and it's spurring you on to follow him. And why then am I recapping all of that again? Because I've done it a few times now, haven't I? I hope you're all kind of saying, yeah, I know that off by heart, because that's where we want to get to. And that's because when we approach God's word, what we want to do is we want to come, don't we, with our two discipleship questions that we use throughout all parts of our church life. The question of what is God saying to us and what am I going to do about it? And I think for us to really understand what God is saying through his word, particularly in the book of Hebrews, it's really important that we have that big picture about what is going on. And particularly for our passage today, if we read it standalone and forgot what was happening on either side of it, I think we would lose the real significance and the depth of what God is saying to us, but also what God said to the first people who heard that message. And as a preacher, what I really, really want is for you to all hear what God is saying in all of its depth to really come to the knowledge of that truth. One way I think it's helpful um, is sometimes have it written down as a picture. So there's a picture going to come up on the screen. 
Uh, and if you want a copy of this, it's the Bible Project. There's some paper ones at the back. There we go. I find it really helpful as I'm going through um, this book of Hebrews to have that drawn out and written down. So if you want a copy of that, grab some. Uh, they're on the communion table at the back of the room. So let's grab a Bible if you don't have one. And we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. There's Bibles at the back of the room in the bookcase if you don't have one or if you haven't got your phone. So when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his promise very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So three weeks ago, we were at the end of chapter four, the beginning of chapter five, which spoke about and opened for us what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest. And what we said there is that he is able to sympathize with our weakness, that he's without sin, that at his throne we find mercy and grace. He was chosen for this role by our Heavenly Father. And I mentioned the reason why the author spoke about Jesus' priestly ministry. And that's because for its Jewish listeners, it would have been for them an anchor for the storms. And here, don't we, we see that made clear again. And that's again what I want us to remember today. That's what I said a few weeks back. That's the thing I wanted you to remember. And I want you to remember that same thing again. That's our big point this morning. That Jesus, as our great high priest, is an anchor for us in the storms of life. He's an anchor for the soul. He's an anchor that gives us direct access to the holy of holies. That grounds us in the forgiving presence of God. Because he stands as our mediator and our great high priest. And that that is God's unchangeable promise to us. And last week we finished uh, in the first bit of chapter 6 where we saw that the author's desire was for this people to know that hope until the end. And it's that hope that we're picking up again today. So I want to break this reading up into three sections for us this morning to look at. We're going to look at verses 13 to 15, which I'm going to say is a reminder to wait patiently. Verses 16 to 18, 
uh, we're going to title, We Have God's Word for It. And then we're going to look at verses 19 to 20, which we're going to title, We Have God's Anchor for It. So, wait patiently. So here, in verse 13, we pick up a prominent story, don't we, that shows that God is faithful to the end. This story of Abraham, one of the most important people in the history of the Jewish faith. When the original Jewish audience would have heard this, they'd have known exactly the story and the reference that Jew, uh, the, uh, the, uh, to Abraham here that the author was making. But if we don't know what that is, I'm going to very quickly recap it for us now. We know that Abraham and Sarah were older. They were without a child to the point where it seemed impossible for them to have a child. Yet God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, he said, A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And we know, don't we, that Sarah miraculously conceives and she gives birth to a son, Isaac. And then God has this test for Abraham, something which seems to go against that promise that he's just made in chapter 15. So in Genesis 22, God says then to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And again, we know, don't we, that Abraham was obedient to God's word. And at the moment when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, an angel of the Lord calls to him and he stops him and God provides a ram. Isaac's life is spared. And it's God's response that we see to Abraham's obedience here, quoted in chapter 6 of Hebrews. We're picking up the end of that story when God's promise becomes now an oath. He swore an oath by himself that he would turn Abraham into that great nation, the Israelite people. And the important bit here for us today is verse 15 of our reading, where it says, so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. It's a call to this church here to remember that the same God who was faithful to Abraham would be faithful to them. And in fact, we know it's even better, don't we, now? Because we know that the new covenant that Jesus made is far greater than the covenant that God made with Abraham. They were to wait patiently too, though just as, they had the, as Abraham had to wait patiently. But they instead were putting their hope in Jesus. So wait patiently for it. So verse 16, I'm just going to read this again. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it in an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Here we see, don't we, that we have God's word for it, that God swears by it. 
So why do we use oaths? Well, if you go to a court and we swear by an oath, don't we, that you're going to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we do that because we know as humans we aren't very reliable, are we? What we say isn't always true, whether we mean it or not. It's just part of our human sinful nature. In ancient culture, um, swearing an oath to God was quite common and it helped people to tell the truth because they had a bit of a fear of God. I'm not 100% sure if that still works in the same way today. But then people were using it to end an argument. They'd swear an oath to God and they were saying that what we said was true and to lie was to misuse the name of God. It was to break the third commandment. So God used a way that people understood to show his certainty. And verse 17 in this passage explains it to us, doesn't it? It says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it in an oath. We don't really need to explain it, do we? It says it clearly here why God was doing this. And I love what one of the commentators, Kent Hughes, um, says about this. He said, God did not have to swear by an oath, but he did so as a condescension or accommodation to human weakness. And again, we go on further. We'll see why he does that. Again, as the passage explains it to us, he said, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it, which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us so that we may be greatly encouraged. And these two unchangeable things are God's promise and they're God's oath. God's promises can do nothing other than come true. The promises in God's word can do nothing other than come true. It's amazing, isn't it? When God speaks and God promises something to us, it comes true. We should be encouraged by this. It should be something that we rejoice about. It should be something that feeds us, that encourages us. It gives us that reason to hope. Just think about what some of those promises are, because they're actually amazing, aren't they? When we think about the promises of God in Scripture. I'm just going to read a few that jumped to my mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That promise is amazing, isn't it? We know it. But do we really know that it's true? Because God has promised it. It's true. It's unchangeable, unbreakable. John 14, another promise, is very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That promise is true. Scripture says it's true, that you will do greater things than Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God said it, it's true. Matthew 28, I was reading this yesterday in my Bible reading. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's a promise of Jesus that God is with you always to the very end of the age. Because God has said it, it's true. It's a promise given to us. I want to pick up one more. Hebrews 4, verse 16. When it speaks about Jesus being that high priest, it says that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's another promise of God that is true. All of these promises are going to come true because God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. All the promises that we see in God's word, all the promises for us in this book will come true. I want to encourage you to learn what those promises are, to commit them to memory, learn them so that they become for you a source of hope. You know, so when things get tough in life, you, know, you can just recall and say, you know, I know that God is always with me. He's with me to the very end of the age. Learn those things, commit them to memory. Let them be for you a source of hope. When you doubt, when you feel overwhelmed with the lies of the enemy, remember the promises of God in his word. Remember that they will come true. See, the command in this passage here for us, the thing that God is saying for us to do, is to take hold of this hope, to be greatly encouraged by it. Speaking on uh, this verse, verse 18, again, Kent Hughes says, truth has sworn by itself that its truth shall be truly fulfilled. There is no more possibility of God's promises failing us than of God falling out of heaven. His word is eternally sealed with the double surety of promise and oath. We have God's word for it. So let's look at these last two verses together. We're going to think now about the anchor being our firm and sure foundation. We have God's anchor for it. So verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we have this hope that God's promises are true and it's a firm and sure anchor. Jesus has entered the holy of holies, the place behind the curtain, the place where God's presence dwells. Remember, we're talking about the imagery of the temple, the place where only the priests could go once a year. And he is there. He's our anchor. He's the church's anchor in that place with direct access to the presence of God. And that means we have a firm and sure footing. An anchor is a source of security, isn't it? An anchor can't be moved. We're anchored into the throne room where we can receive grace and mercy. And what it says here, doesn't it, is that it's forever. It wasn't just for the people that we were first hearing this message 2,000 years ago. It's forever. It's for us. It's for our children. It's for our children's children. Jesus, our high priest, who not only went behind the kilt curtain, though, we see he tore it in two, don't we? It's that firm foundation, the secure anchor, the one in whom we hope, whose promises will come true eternally. And thus, this is the security of our eternal hope, isn't it? Our hope in God is eternal. It's not a once and a short thing. It's eternal hope. Hope in Jesus is never, ever going to run out. We don't see, do we, that Jesus has promised us an easy life? 
In fact, we see that the Bible says that as followers of Jesus, things are going to be challenging, that life is going to be hard sometimes. But here, I think, what God is saying to us is that we have a way through it. We have a footing in the presence of God. Jesus as our high priest, mediating and interceding on our behalf to the Father, a high priest who knows our struggles, knows our weaknesses, and one who deals gently with us. See, we have here a God whose promises are always true and are unbreakable. We have a sure and certain hope in Jesus as our great high priest, our anchor for the soul. So what are we going to do about it? That's what God's saying. What are we going to do about it? The response really, I think, is, is challenging, isn't it? But it's quite easy in the same breath. It's know it. It's take it into your heart. Know that God's promises are true. So what I want us to do, we're going to come to communion together now. And under the, uh, the chairs under the end of each row, there's some post-it notes and some pens. And what I want us to do is to write down areas of our lives where we're not holding to those promises of God that we know are true, where we're not allowing Jesus to be our great high priest. So an example of this could be uh, in your finances. Maybe you're not trusting God for it. Maybe you're not believing that promise of Matthew 6 where it says, look at the birds of the air, They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth so much more than they? There's so many promises in Scripture of God, isn't there? In areas, there's promises of God for every area of your life. I think we just need to read them and take them and know them. So what I want us to do to respond this morning is to come and offer back to God the areas where we're not doing that as an act of repentance and a way to say, I'm going to trust the promises that you have for us. So what I want us to do now is just spend a few moments. We're going to write down those areas where we say, I need to trust and believe your promises in that part of my life. And then as we come up to receive communion this morning, what I want to invite you to do is the reason why it's a sticky note is to come and stick it on the cross, just as a way of physically moving and saying, God, I give this over to you. What I choose to do is to trust your promises, to trust that your promises are true because you are our great high priest. So let's just take a moment of quiet. As we respond, I'm going to read um, a prayer, a really old prayer. It's a prayer um, from uh, the Puritans. It's called Divine Promises. It's a prayer that people have prayed for hundreds of years. All thy promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, and all shall be fulfilled. Thou hast spoken them 
and thou shalt be done. Command it, and they shall come to pass. Yet I have often doubted thee, have lived at times as if there were no God. Lord, forgive that death in life. When I have found something apart from thee, when I have been content with temporary things, but through your grace I have repented. Thou hast given me to read my pardon in the wounds of Jesus, and my soul doth trust in him, my God incarnate, the ground of my life, the spring of my hope. Teach me to be resigned to your will, to delight in your law, to have no will but yours, to believe that everything thou do is for my good. Help me to leave my concerns in your hands. For you have power over evil and bring from it an infinite progression of good until your purposes are fulfilled. Bless me with Abraham's faith that staggers not at promises through unbelief. May I not instruct thee in my troubles, but glorify thee in my trials. Grant me a distinct advance in divine life. May I reach a higher platform, leave the mists of doubt and fear in the valley and climb to the hilltops of eternal security in Christ by simply believing he cannot lie or turn from his purpose. Give me the confidence I ought to have in him who is worthy to be praised for who is blessed forevermore. Amen.